What's up, Don't At Me listeners? Uh, here on Don't At Me, I get to have unfiltered conversations with storytellers I'm fascinated by. This week is no different, but we're in for a treat because this is an angle on storytelling I've actually never got to cover before. Food! Uh, also happens to be my favorite angle. So uh, after the music break, we are going to be talking to David Gelb, who is a, a filmmaker. Uh, you know his work. Uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, The Lazarus Effect, and of course Chef's Table, a foodie favorite on Netflix. You're going to want to get a snack. So, David, um, first of all, welcome to Don't At Me, man. Thank you so much for having me. Let me just rattle off the resume here a bit for the people who, for the kids who don't know. So, your 2011 film, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, followed Jiro Ono, who is widely regarded as the foremost sushi chef at, you know, the young age of 93. The film was a huge hit on Netflix, and off of its success, you got this other show, Chef's Table. If you haven't seen the show... It's not just, you, you, you. first of all, you like to call it food love, not food porn, and I think that that's apropos, <laughs> because you shoot it like it's cinematic, the way you shoot it. It's not just like, you know, here's some delicious food. I mean, when I watch most food reality shows, it's really, I just want to order food immediately. But with your show, I both want to eat more, which... Fuck you for that. But also, um, I <laughs> I marvel at like just the cinematic quality of it. So my first question for you, Dave, is like, what came first? Love of food? Love of film? Oh, man. You know, I think that they came together. Yeah. My mom's a cook. Okay. And so she works on cookbooks. So she okay. does um, like recipe testing and recipe development. Yeah. So, you know, when people read a cookbook, there's like the story and kind of like the, the uh, context that the chef gives and then the actual recipe. Right. And people kind of take for granted the amount of work that goes into doing that recipe. Sure. So she has to get the right proportions, make sure it works in a home kitchen. And so I was like the tester. Mm. And so I would eat a lot at home um, with my mom. And then my dad has always been in the arts. He used to manage um, classical musicians and now he is... Uh, Became a, he became a record uh, a classical music record executive, and now he runs the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Wow. So he's always my whole life taken me to like fancy restaurants and right, stuff, and I right. was always sitting at the grown ups. So table. you fancy David is what you're saying? Yeah, growing up, like <laughs> a, a light a light Tannenbaum kind of. Oh, uh, situation. listen, that's a dream. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, so that's always just been in in in, in my head, and then uh, you know I always wanted to make movies, but I wanted to make like Star Wars and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and then just in film school and just like in the act of doing stuff you just kind of find your niche I guess and sure. so fell in love with documentaries and uh, thought that you know there's a better way to do food than what you're seeing on like mm. food TV you so know? so for you it really was like film was first like you know for instance like I I write and direct but right. directing came for like I yeah. write because I want to direct is that yeah. kind of how it is it's like you you make movies about food because you yeah. want to make movies yeah well yeah and 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 in when we we're doing chef's table and Jiro, like the the key is that we're making movies about chefs it's mm -hmm. not like it's about people yeah. you know so the the idea and the kind of our breakthrough was that you know we're not going to like teach people how to cook mm -hmm. we're not going to um you know make it like where you're on a studio and then it's like it's like an instructional lesson our whole thing is to like tell the human journey sure. of the person and then in doing so you know you'll learn something about the food and stuff but it all comes from like a story the reason why I love being a storyteller is because I feel like we're surrounded by stories. What kind of story does food tell us that other things can't? Well, I think we look at it, they're kind of like artist stories, mm -hmm. you know. 
so we consider food to be in the context of our show it's like it's a craft and so the stories that we're telling are like the origin stories of great artists yes and you know and and yes. when we when we talk about it internally you know we talk about following like the superhero kind of archetype because th- these chefs they're doing something nobody else can do mm-hmm. all the chefs that we're choosing they figured out a way to cook something or do something that nobody else has ever done before. Yeah. And so the idea is like, let's track that personal journey. Like, what is the moment in their childhood or adolescence or whenever when they got that like radioactive spider bite? Like, mm. what is the moment that like put that seed, that power, or like revealed to them that they had this ability? And then you follow the course of their life and, and they're using their power for good. And sometimes they're using it like in the wrong way mm. and they make mistakes. And then through the, you know, it's just, it's just like the, it's the journey, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah. So you make the mistakes and then you discover, wait, I should actually be doing this. Like this is what I, I thought that what I wanted was this, but what I need is this. So we treat it the same as, as if you were making a film about any kind of artist or any kind of creative person when you're telling the life story. Do you feel, do you feel a kinship with these, these chefs? Because it's almost like you, you're kind of describing your own story a little bit here. Oh, sure. I mean, I think that it's a kinship between all like craftspeople. And that's one of the things that I think makes Chef's Table work is that even if you're not a foodie and even if you have no intention of being a chef or anything like that, people still enjoy the show because you can apply the lessons of life through uh, the creative struggle. It it goes to, it applies to anybody. It applies Mm -hmm. to any craft. You're taking viewers all around the world, no matter where they're from, you're, we're, you're introducing cultures and people to us that we may not even be aware that's where our, the food that we love or food mm. that we've never, we don't even know that that's where it came from. Mm. Is there a political slant to what you do? Is there a getting people to see each other in other, like is there any yeah. of that that's part of it for you? Yeah, and I, I think that, well, that was one of the things that made Jiro Dreams of Sushi really work mm. was that we're taking people to a place that they may never be able to go to we're showing them, and then we're showing the human side yeah. uh, of these people. And that you're right, like they're not like you know he has a lot of pressure from his dad, like Yoshikazu Jiro's son. Like that's something that we can all identify with, sure. even on the highest levels of, of of sushi making, you know, in, in in Tokyo. And regarding like the political slant, you know, I think it's something that we've kind of been growing into mm. as the show has been going on. And you know, we're really inspired by you know Anthony Bourdain, you know, rest in sure, peace, who has always been a hero of mine. I feel like what he did, what he does on his show, which is so special, is that he, he just he helps us understand that like no matter how, what corner of the world you're in, like we're all just we're all people. Yeah. You know, we all sit around a table together and eat something, and you know that that's a universal human experience. So in a way, it kind of makes the world feel like a little closer together. Mm-hmm. And I think that what we want to do in our show is like you know just show people that you know this is this is this person's life it's a it may be a different experience but they have the same feelings and there's things that are similar to your own life right so like if you look at our most recent season you know it's something like something like four episodes all different kind of parts of the world but we're not just looking at chefs and fancy restaurants anymore you know mm-hmm. we have um for example Christina Martinez in Philadelphia and she's you know she's an undocumented immigrant and we're showing just like how her struggle just to get to the United States to try to, you know, try to protect her family, mm. make a better life for her daughter, be take for granted the life uh, experiences of people. I think sure. we take it for granted kind of the, the struggles that people have. And when you make a film about them in a really intimate and thoughtful way, it removes the barriers, I think, a right. little bit. And you just see the humanity of people, that we're all the same. Well, I think that that's, I mean, I think that's so powerful. And Carla Hall put out this book about soul food. Soul food really is American food because what the slaves made for their masters became 
American food. And so mm-hmm. once you realize that, there is this kind of profound connection that all of us have, even as Americans, and this couldn't be a more divisive time in our country, mm-hmm. but we all are eating kind of, we're eating a diet that was brought to us. Is there, have you, have you heard any anecdotes or stories of people who, I don't know, whose eyes have been, you know, with dear white people all the time, I, 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 my favorite thing is when, uh, you know, a white woman from Kentucky comes up to me and tells me, oh my God, I'm totally Coco. You know, yeah, yeah, I yeah, love that. Yeah, yeah. Have you had those experiences where you feel like this show has really made a shift in somebody? Well, I mean, a lot of the messages that we get, the most memorable ones are from people who are like, oh, you know, I, I, uh, I'm not a foodie. Mm. I don't care about chefs or cooking, but I was really moved by by yeah. this thing. Yeah, and so we get a lot of that on social media, which yeah. I think means a lot. One of the biggest compliments that we've gotten recently was from uh, Chef Jose Andres, who has always been, you know, he's an advocate for immigrants and uh, especially sure. in like you know just like raise awareness of the fact that you know like twenty, I think it's like twenty percent of the restaurant workers mm. are undocumented and are just like treated as like second-class citizens or, like, yes. criminals in this country. And so, you know, he's always been kind of critical of me for, you know, putting a lot of fancy kind of privileged type of sh- types of chefs on the show who are fascinating and they're great artists and stuff. But he um, came around and he gave me a big compliment on uh, our newest season, which, mm. I, which I really appreciated. And, and so... Um, and talk, talk to, yeah. just for people who haven't caught up, you know, yeah. what's, the new, what's different about the newest season of Chef's Table? Well, I would say the newer seasons of Chef's Table, mm-hmm. so we were all about, like, tasting courses at first. The first season, we're looking at, okay, how can we make Jiro and do it in different places with, like, different chefs? Mm-hmm. Super fancy, complicated kind of cooking. It's almost like avant-garde kind of art kind of cooking. Yeah. Miraculous, like, beautiful meals. But there was this kind of, like like, a lot of white chefs... A lot of male chefs, sure, and that's what you see in. But the we media don't have enough. Well. We don't have enough white men <laughs> in culture, though. I feel like you guys. Yeah, are yeah. You know, it's it's really tough. had a, a rough yeah go at it. So we're looking at um, now. It just it's eclectic now. Yeah. So it's like we have in the latest season, for example, we have a Thai woman who's like finding the original Thai flavors of like the homeland that have been kind of. The Thai menu that you see, like the Thai takeout menu that you see in the United States is like kind of like taken over Thai food. Mm-hmm. You know, you have your curries and, you know, it's all just like very simple. And so she's like discovering like the real Thai flavors and trying mm-hmm. to bring that back. And then we have Christina Martinez, who we just talked about, who makes the most delicious barbacoa uh, tacos oh, God, in, 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 in South Philly. words. So good. <laughs> uh, and then um, we have Albert uh, Adria, who's like the fanciest chef of the season. Uh-huh. And his story is that his brother, Ferran Adria, is the most famous chef in the world, probably, in like the high-end food world. Right. Created the restaurant El Bui. But Albert much is a lot shyer and kind of was behind the scenes, but was really just as responsible for sure. all like the brilliance of that. So it's kind of like he's trying to like step out of the shadows a little bit. So we have like all different types of chefs now, all different types of food, all different like kind of you can be from anywhere in the world. If you're if you have a passionate story to tell, we're interested in telling that story. That's yeah. amazing. Talk to me a little bit about when you fell in love with documentaries and talk to me a little bit about what that process is like. You know, sure. I go into a, a cave yeah. and I just sort of channel something from my imagination and yeah. then I go about trying to make reality look something like my imagination. You go out in search of reality. Right. And try to whittle that into a story. Yeah. You come into film school trying to make Star Wars. Yeah. How do you go from that to finding your place in documentaries? I think that a lot of what had what was happening for me personally was 
the technology was just like right in this place mm -hmm. where I was able to shoot with like a hand, you know, with a home video camera and edit on my home computer mm -hmm. and you could just make a thing. I just kind of started doing that. I was able to get these little like summer jobs or while I was in school or I was shooting kind of behind the scenes for like music video directors who I knew from school and stuff and doing like behind the scenes things. I got a job right out of school shooting a rock and roll documentary for a rock band. They hated it and took away all the footage and stuff. And <laughs> okay, because I was about to ask who it was. But it I was a big lesson. No, I'm going to spare. I'm going to spare them. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, we're friendly now. It's all fine. <laughs> but uh, that was just like a big. Um, anyway, just like kind of like, I just kind of fell into it. And just when the red camera came out, mm -hmm. we were like, wow, like this is a way to make very big cinematic documentaries with like a minimal crew. Yeah. And so I was able to find that. I was able to make the movie. What year was that? Do you remember? I would say it was uh, 2006. Eight. Okay, that makes sense. I want to say 2007, 2008. Yeah. And so we realized it's like, oh, when you're making a documentary, you don't need to have like a big crew or anything. Um, and if you can find a great character, you, you can't fail mm -hmm. as long as you just like tell the truth about that character. Right. Because again, you know, people are fascinating. People are just fascinating. Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com join. How is a documentary made? Like, I, oh, I know, yeah. forgive me for sure. for being this basic about it. Yeah. But I really am fascinated by what you do. Yeah. Um, like, what is the process? Like, what do you, what do you do? how do you do it? Do you yeah. start with a story that you're trying to fit something into? Do you just get random footage for a while? Like, what, how does it work? It's all about finding a uh, character. Yeah. Every, all our documentaries are character driven. And do you find that person before you start shooting? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because that's what triggers the whole thing. Mm -hmm. You find a person or a, a, a character, or if you're telling a larger story, you need to find a character that's like your entry point. Mm -hmm. Because just like in any television or, or, or film, you need a perspective. You need a character's perspective, mm -hmm. and that you're that you're following into the story. Otherwise, why is the audience going to care? There has to be something that they, a person that they relate to, that they want to they want to know what happens to him or her. Yeah. We look at a character, we look at the story of their life, and we have the same kind of like standards in storytelling as uh, any, anything that's scripted. Because we need to know, do we have, does this person's story have a beginning, middle, and end? And mm -hmm. is there like, what is the meaning? What is like the thesis? Like, what is the audience gonna take away from this? When you're looking for a character, it's you and what, producers? Like, how, what does that look so like? So in the case of Chef's Table, yeah, I have all the support and I have a lot of help on Chef's Table now. Sure. But back when I was doing Jiro, yeah. I knew I wanted to make a film in the world of sushi. Mm -hmm. And I wanted it to look like Planet Earth but sushi, yeah, and like that's where I was at. Yeah, I was yeah. like Planet Earth, the films of Errol Morris, also like he just have an amazing look to them. Sure. And like these are documentaries that look as beautiful as any movie. Sure. And so I was like, okay, I want to do that 
with food. Or the hills. And then I <laughs> You know, for instance, just another acclaimed documentary. Oh, Go absolutely. Ahead. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm making little short films about different characters, different sushi chefs. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of like hit me when we found Jiro and all the different chefs were all telling me, you got to film Jiro. He's like, he's like the king of sushi. Like he's like the god of sushi. Sure. So we go find him. We meet him and we see that his son is still working in the restaurant. And his son's like 55. Mm-hmm. And, wow, you know, dad's in right. his like late 80s. That's right. That's and right. it's just like, this is a story. Movie. No, this yeah. is a story right there. It's yeah. like right there. It's like question to me. It's like, when is he going to let his son take over the restaurant? Sure. And then the suspense of like, oh, is it going to be as good if the son takes over the restaurant? Uh-huh. And like these questions immediately were like, wow, this is like a story. Yeah. And instead of making a film about sushi in general or about different sushi chefs, like, no, we'll tell the story of this like father-son relationship and get into the life story of this really inspiring person. Like Mm -hmm. there's a reason that everybody says that he's the god of sushi and it's just his work ethic Mm -hmm. and his taste is just at such a high Mm -hmm. level and his discipline. So he's doing everything exactly the same way every day and just looking for that one little bit of improvement. And so we found like the the philosophical kind of interesting thing about it. We have like the actual just like suspenseful storyline of like succession the dynasty of sushi mm-hmm. that we're that we're dealing with here when those pieces started to come together this is this is now a movie right and, and you yeah. know they're coming together because you're out here doing interviews you're you're just sort of interviewing people and right. kind of going back into again interviewing and editing yeah and then going back and to an office and sort of discussing is yeah. that what it is yeah i mean we do we're interviewing we're searching we're recording and that's one of the great things advantages of documentary mm-hmm. is that I can just go back into the field and get more material and, and, right. and come back because that's the, the the nature of it is just that whatever's happening out there, that's all real and authentic. Mm-hmm. And I just have to worry about getting there mm-hmm. and shooting it and asking the right questions and then putting it together in the editing room. And then if I'm missing something, you I can, can just go, go right back. back out there. I think that on your show, it's probably a little bit harder if oh, you're yeah, in the edit done, room and you're missing done. something, like you're like, uh oh. <laughs> yeah, it's like cut that yeah. in a weirder way yeah. and put a line off screen and make it work. <laughs> yeah, you uh, do it in ADR. I guess. Exactly. Oh uh, yeah. But that's one of the things I, I admire about what you do so much, and uh, is that not only do you have to think about how you're going to record the story, but you have to like make it feel real in front of the camera mm-hmm. as well. And uh, you know, I, I've dabbled in that, and it's hard. But it's you funny, know? you know, we're all chasing the same thing. It's yeah. like. I think every narrative filmmaker wants that kind of raw, in the moment intensity that when you're uh, you're shooting a documentary, you just automatically get it. Mm. Even and, and this could and please correct me if I'm wrong, mm. but it's like even if a subject is hesitant or is being cagey, you're still capturing the reality of that. That's right, and it's still interesting, and that becomes part of the story. Yeah, and then you start to wonder, like, oh, it it makes you want to dig deeper. Mm-hmm. But the key for documentary and good documentary is like how do you bond with your subject and get them comfortable and um, creating that mutual trust Mm -hmm. as your story continues if you have a subject who's a bit cagey or Mm -hmm. or, or guarded as the shoot continues you know you begin to start realize that you're you're, you're on the same team right and then that that itself is like a character progression if they start to open up and that can be really like amazing and i've seen some great docs have you ever have you ever formed a bond with somebody but felt that ultimately what's in the cut it's not going to make them happy. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and what do you do? How All do you, the time. How do you manage that? Well, I mean, as long as we're honest, 
then you know we 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 come to a a, a consensus usually right. like over time. Sometimes it takes longer for the chefs to like get comfortable with it, you know, because right. our style of interviewing, like we interview longer than any chef has been interviewed before mm. usually. Because mm -hmm. usually what happens is unless it's like so there's some in depth magazine profiles that do like very long interviews, but their TV experience, you know, and being interviewed and stuff is usually it's like Bourdain or somebody will come by, you know, if it's whatever the show is. You know, it's like a couple hours. Mm -hmm. They have dinner together or or if they're being interviewed for like a promo video for the restaurant, or whatever, they have their like spiel. They have their story that they like to tell. Mm -hmm. And our show, we let them tell their story and, you know, we get that whole story that they want to tell out of them. But then we still have three hours left in the interview. Right. And we are just going to go deep and we're going to ask the questions over and over again in different ways until we really get to the truth. It becomes like a therapy session. So in a way. And it becomes a therapy session for me, too, and for the other directors on the show, because our style of interviewing is not only are we, you know, we're asking the questions, but we're volunteering the reasons in our own lives that we are interested in it. Right. And so by us being vulnerable and us giving them something about ourselves, so we're trying to talk, talk about a painful part of the life. Right. We talk about a, a, something similar in our own lives right. and how we felt. And then we ask them, how do you feel, right. you know, in that moment in your life? And if you offer yourself up, then it just they they have they they just be immediately begin to open up to you as that's well. Real, that's yeah. really interesting because it's like it you know so I'm I'm really in, I I've encountered this idea uh, recently uh, where we all have like a zone of genius and a zone of expertise and what that means is that like in your zone of genius you're in flow you're like you're doing what you love or whatever that thing is and you just feel right you feel connected and I feel that way when I'm literally putting a shot together working with the act like I feel I'm just in it it feels good but then there's a whole there are other aspects of filmmaking that are I'm really good at this is my expertise but it doesn't give me energy it's mm, like you know mm -hmm. I'm in the sound mix and we're listening to you know the ambiance um, you know ambiance option number 48 <laughs> and I can pick that out but I I'm not in the zone right I don't know it, just hearing you talk it almost feels like that the interview is the zone for you I don't know is that true I think that the zone for me is is interview and edit, mm -hmm. you know? And I like shooting the food. Like, I like shooting pretty pictures also, sure. which is yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. Well, obviously. It, 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 <laughs> in in, the, so in the interview, yeah, that's when I, for me, it's when I get like my, like you're, what you're describing, it's like this flow because mm -hmm. it becomes like this, it just becomes this like conversation. Mm -hmm. You're talking about like really deep and like personal stuff. Mm -hmm. Also something like really kind of like, you're, you're talking about like stuff that they may not have ever talked about or they haven't talked about like for a very long time. And so that it becomes like very intimate and it's sure. like kind of like emotional um, experience yeah. in doing that, which is, and when it's really right and you're really connecting, it like feels amazing. And I've done some interviews that are really great that really feel great like that. And sometimes, you know, it's hard to like get through the defenses because they're sure. not like ready to talk about it. But like you said, that's that Cajun, part that's of part story. of the story. It's right on camera. Talk to me about just, you know, breaking in. How do you become a documentary filmmaker? Mm. Because it's almost like, it seems better than ever because, yeah. you know, I don't know about you, but my, I've always loved documentaries, but now I watch them all the time. Mm. I mean, I, for me, a documentary, there's no barrier to entry. Right. But at the same time, I mean, there's still a lot of folks trying to figure out how to do it. Because yeah. unlike narrative, there isn't, it's not in the zeitgeist as much like how to be a documentary filmmaker. Sure. What are the steps you take? So what are the steps you take? <laughs> the steps, and by the way, I the hate answering this take. question. Yeah, yeah. No, I I'm mean, asking of it course, <laughs> of course. And But I, I think that it's, it is easier than ever to make a documentary now. Sure. Because your phone is amazing. Mm -hmm. Like, 
you can shoot incredible slow-mo footage like on your phone. Like you can shoot beautiful stuff just using your cell phone. Mm -hmm. It's really just about finding a character that is exciting to you and that you want to know about their life mm -hmm. and you want to learn something from them. And I think that that's kind of the start. So you're making you're making shorts and you're editing it on your iMovie or, or, or whatever it is. When you find a great subject, your short becomes a little bit longer, becomes mm. a little bit longer, and eventually could become a feature. That's and um, I think that that's but the only way to do it. And there's this great quote by Ira Glass, which which I who who, who I'm, a, I'm a big fan of. You, I've heard of you know, him. You've heard of him. <laughs> you're in the po you're in the podcast world. Maybe you've heard of him. Of course. But he has this great quote, and it's like become like a meme almost. But it's just like his words on creativity. So your taste is up here. Yeah. And like you know what you like. And then your ability is you yes. just practicing and Correct. going over and over again until you like get close to your taste, right? What he warns you about is quitting because people quit because they get frustrated because they, their ability is not at their level of taste. Wow. And so to those making, trying to make documentaries, make, a hunt, make like 50 documentary shorts. Make this short film about like your interesting friends, like life story. Just like, get out there and dip your just toe. Just make things and put it on YouTube, you know, just like make lots of things. And as you're doing it over and over again, and that's the great thing about it, it doesn't cost a whole lot of money to sure. make a documentary. Like making a, a scripted thing where you, you want it to, it has to like look professional and like all this stuff. You get a whole lot of passes on documentary because if you're sure. telling something that's like honest and visceral, like people won't care how beautiful your cinematography is. Mm -hmm. You know, it's nice and to also, have good audio so people go can hear back. It. And Go back and add some more to it. Yeah. yeah. But really all you need is your, your little camera or, or even your phone and like a microphone. You're in the place where you can just start that process of making little shorts over and over again. And over right. time, they'll get longer. They'll mean more. You'll get better. And you'll start to reach that level where your ability is approaching your taste. And that's like the most satisfying moment of creativity is when you're able to make something that, that like, is at your level of taste. Yeah. That's like nirvana. I mean, I think. we're all working towards yeah. it. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's the journey. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's really interesting. I actually never thought of it that way. So you're saying like, you know, if I want to be a documentary filmmaker, I just need to just be doing it and yes. think of it as like little five minute pieces, 10 minute pieces, whatever. Yeah. And then eventually something catches yeah. and becomes a bit more. Yeah. How do you sell documentaries? Mm. How do you, is, the marketplace seems both warm and cold. <laughs> yes. How do you sell documentaries? I mean, it's actually, it's interesting. My, uh, my wife, uh, Christine D'Souza-Gelb, uh, who's actually uh, in the room with us, is yes. a better person to ask that question to. It can take... Uh, many tries yeah. to like get something that's really going to like snag the uh, attention mm -hmm. of people. One of the great things though is that because of YouTube and like, for example, my brother Matthew just made a documentary. He's kind of in this process now of like what we were talking about, like making short films and starting to build on them. So he made a short about a, a Cuban cigar maker, mm. and uh, you know we got into a bunch of film festivals and. We kind of, we self released it using um, like Amazon Prime has its own like self distribution mm. tool. Oh right, and I so people that, yes. find it online, you know, and they watch it, and then you know you kind of just build. It's like building a resume, and as you do that, your skills are getting better, more people are seeing your work, and just that's part of the process of like getting your ability up to your taste. Is just, if you can get into get into some film festivals, watching your movie with an audience will teach you so much because mm -hmm. then you're seeing like oh when are they laughing, when are they quiet. Are they laughing at the moments you thought that they were going to laugh or, you know, you see their reactions and stuff like that. Now, to get the distribution, you just keep on, again, just keep on making them, keep on putting it out there. You know, hopefully something will like hook. Right. But um, you can't let like the need for distribution or that need for approval prevent you from just doing the process of like doing it over and over again. Because, so, yeah, I, I love that. because It's tough. I, it, it is hard when you're you're out here and you're trying to figure out how to pay your bills and do the thing and... 
it always comes down to you just got to do the thing because you love it mm-hmm. and hope that people catch yeah. up. I mean, yeah. I, everything I ever tried to do because I thought it would be profitable or successful has never worked out. It's always the things that are kind of long shots, but I just love it that work out. It's so true, actually. Yeah, because yeah. I didn't know that Chef's Table was going to be mm-hmm. what it is now. Mm-hmm. You know, I had no idea. I mean, you and I are kind of similar in that we made a movie and it right. kind of became a show. That's right. Yeah. That, yeah. Is, that is actually really similar. Yeah. And, uh, we're, I mean, we're, I guess we're lucky in that way. I mean, thank, thanks, Dad. Big up to, to Ted <laughs> <laughs> for, seeing, for seeing our stuff and wanting more, which yeah. is amazing. Yeah. But, you know, I think that one thing that's really helpful, like if your goal is to have something that's being seen, is like make it it's about something that matters, mm-hmm. like to today, like right now. Yeah. I saw a lot of really good documentary work leading up to the midterms, people making films about like their candidates and things sure. like that. And that's like a good way to like make something that's like that's present in the zeitgeist is, is find an issue and, and tell an interesting point of view on that issue. You talk about taste. What are you watching? Like what is your... I don't know. I, in my mind, like, I, there's a few, like, I've got directors in a pantheon, and I'm, yeah, cha- yeah. I'm chasing that bar. Yeah, yeah. Do you have that? Sure. What is I that? I mean, we've been chasing, so documentary track, like, we've been chasing Errol Morris. Yeah. I mean, if you look at our work, the, you can see the influence yeah, of, of, of Errol Morris. Jiro Dreams of Sushi has a lot of Philip Glass music, you know, a lot of slow motion. I mean, The Fog of War was a huge influence on me. Cause mm. I saw that movie, and I was like, this is, like, He's telling, and it's, it's informational. A lot of it's informational. Yeah. And the way that he's using the music, the camera work, everything, it just felt like this is like the most important movie. Like, right. And it was like the most important movie because it's about this perspective of war, about how nobody understands it. That's why we shouldn't do it. There's never a positive outcome. And so like that was like with the music and everything and the way that he laid it out, it was just like so profound. And so we were trying to apply that to our thing, and in the process, you know what's funny, in the process of imitating Errol Morris, we uh-huh. like came up with our own style yeah, also. Sure. You know, mentioned Planet Earth visually, mm-hmm. and like in terms of like spectacle and stuff, like we're always chasing that. Sure. Like, love Planet Earth. We had the honor of being, uh, of losing an Emmy to them uh, recently, <laughs> so that was like, a, a profound honor. Um, it's not awesome. bad company to be in, let me tell you. No, absolutely not. No, yeah. be in the same category. I don't even know how they make that show. I mean, it's so yeah, It's massive. the most amazing thing, and it's so massive. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I want to do a nature show like ah. that. Well, I was yeah. going to ask you, like, what's, what are the topics are you kind of chomping at the bit to oh, cover? Oh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, um, I'm, I'm really interested in nature. Um, I'm interested in, like, but entering it through a, a human story mm. somehow. So that's something that we're looking at just because of how the planet is just being, like, completely ravaged. Do you have any desire to get into that conversation as a filmmaker? Just the political stuff, the, you know, all the crazy shit going on in the Well, world. yeah, I mean, like, that's one of the reasons that we wanted to do the uh, Christina Martinez episode. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and, and we released that pretty close to the midterm just to show you do not need to be afraid of immigrants. Sure. Like, what they are running away from, you know, mm. a lot of the problems that they have in Central America are things that we've done in the United, the United States policy in Central mm. America has caused mm. a lot of these problems the roots of these problems that are causing people to need to leave those countries. And they're just like us, you know? Yeah. And it's just like, so that's what we wanted to tell that in that story. And I think that our approach is going to be kind of that kind of positive messaging. So if we were going to make a film or a series about nature, it would be just to show how important and like beautiful mm-hmm. nature is and how it relates to us as people and yeah. like why. Do you think stories can change the world? Oh, absolutely. I think stories always have changed the world. Yeah, I agree. And they're good stories, and then they're bad stories. Yeah. Documentary has been used as you know as propaganda because of you can t- because of the authenticity 
of the format, like people have used that to really negative effect. And you saw what was coming out of the White House with mm-hmm. this like fake video yeah. that they sent yeah. out, like where they, like they doctored it so that it could shape reality. There is a very cheap and crappy story that can be told that is like a horror story mm-hmm. about people who are different from you, and mm-hmm. um, that's some that can take hold, and a, a, a scary amount of people will buy into that kind of narrative, and that's the narrative right now. The positive and nuanced narrative. Mm-hmm. And that's a harder story to tell. It requires yes. more skill to tell that story. When you were faced, you know, when I when I came up in theater, we always talk about stories as the lie that tell the truth. Mm. But but I feel like documentary is a little tricky. Mm. And if you have to decide between telling the truth about a person and making the message of the story clear or specific, I mean, it, it, no matter what you make a documentary, no matter how close reality is, you're always editing something out. You're always accentuating this. You're, you're having to craft it. Yeah. What do you pick? What do you pick just in your heart and soul? Well, <laughs> not, we, not, no, maybe not for Chef's Table, but like yeah, just yeah. in general, like, yeah. what do you pick? Yeah, well, what we say, because you know, there are always situations where you're in the editing room, you have your, you have what you have, and then it's not exactly what you wanted it to be mm-hmm. like there are moments where it's like you want that story point like you're talking about like a character comes into a story wanting something mm-hmm. and they usually they want the wrong thing yeah they want it for like the for a good reason it's an understandable reason but it's not what they really need mm-hmm. and then in the process of trying to get that thing they, get what they, they discover need. what they actually need yeah and so when you're making a doc and sometimes like you realize that like this person is not fully had that realization yet mm-hmm. and like maybe it's it, it can get a little harder and the responsibility that we have is one to choose people we're able to lean comfortably lean into the truth on mm-hmm. and make the mm-hmm. point and that's the only time you really get in trouble is if you have someone in a film who when you try to really be honest about them it undercuts their actual message and that that's that's a tricky situation you so know? what do you pick well I would, <laughs> I, I would choose I would choose to uh, to lean into the truth generally yeah when I say lean into the truth that allows like a little bit of wiggle room sometimes right. you know because like you think about what are the details that are necessary or important and like that really like convey what your person's about but again it's casting is everything and documentary Mm. casting is absolutely everything absolutely you got to choose someone who's worth who's worthy of having a story told about them that's really interesting it's like i don't know if you feel this way but i feel like uh documentary that's the double-edged sword is that it really like you said it's it's propaganda no matter which way you slice it but it's either propaganda in in defense of a truth Mm. or it's propaganda in defense of somebody's personal interest right so what you're saying is like, for example, if when you have a documentary yeah, and it's a great story, people are really into it, and then you Google it and you find out that it's not true, yeah. it undercuts faith in the entire format. Absolutely. You know? So there was a, a film that won the Oscars called Searching for Sugar Man. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. yep. really good movie. Yeah. Like you watch really that movie. Good. So good. Music's amazing. Incredible story. His music was like making all these people money and like all this stuff. And like he never even got, he didn't even know mm-hmm. his music was famous mm-hmm. and everything. So you're inspired by this thing. And then you Google, it, you want to learn more about it. And it under a lot of the stuff that was in the movie was you could tell that they had made the choices that were better for the story sure. of the film. So there are two things going on here. So like one, it's like great filmmaking because you're, you're manipulating it in a way that like makes it like an awesome story. But the, the sad thing is that the character is a really interesting character. You don't have to, you don't have to do it that way. Well, that's how I felt about Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. Is that like, why not just do the actual story 
rather than do what you think that people want the story to be that's going to be yeah. the most entertaining because then because he basically like you can rearrange it into like the archetype that we're all used to in rock and roll you know rise rise and you know mm-hmm. fall and fall mm-hmm. like that story is like you know it's well known it's easy to like hit those points and yeah. make it feel like a movie yeah you know the greater challenge is to tell the nuanced story of the truth but i think that's the responsibility that you have otherwise people just aren't going to believe it we are kind of getting close to the end so i have two questions i want to ask you as a documentary filmmaker, do you watch reality TV? And what do you think about yeah, it? Yeah, I do. There are a couple shows that, that I'm into, and sort of like my guilty pleasures. Yes. And it's actually funny because like people ask me, I uh, know I'll give you are. a double question, because uh, <laughs> a double answer on this, because for a question you didn't ask, but people people ask me like, you know, so you eat like the fancy, like what's your guilty pleasure yes. in food? And I say McDonald's is like my guilty oh pleasure. Oh my God, you're because, a foodie that eats McDonald's. Yeah, not often. But like it's if, funny, I'm, in an airport, if was, I'm in an airport, if I'm in an airport, second question, so this is good. Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> if I'm in an airport, so it's like there's something about like chasing after the highbrow like vest yep. thing, but there's something about like the most populist like version. Like there's a reason that the Big Mac has been around, sure, for all this time. Same with documentary. So we try to make you know these classy documentaries. Yeah. But I'm watching Million Dollar Listing New York, <laughs> just because which it's like, is not scripted at all. No, right? It's just you know we're just it's just yeah. Just no, people no, saying the things the truth, that they would normally the say. Yeah, you, do you, just, when you, you watch, just go with it. I, my guilty pleasure is Real Housewives, especially yeah. when I'm making television. Yeah, when I come home, the last thing I want to do is watch something important or serious because exactly. I've been yeah. making it all day. So I love the Housewives of it. I love all of the Housewives basically. But the what how I watch it is I'm looking for the parts that were scripted and I'm trying to guess like oh was this a producer set up uh, or oh did they arrange this lunch so they could get camera time yeah. and I, and so like trying to par- how do they instigate these fights yeah <laughs> like trying to parcel out the parts that are scripted and the parts that are real it's kind of the thrill of watching it for yeah. me does your mind do that when you're oh, watching yeah, these no, we things you're trying think, to figure we, out we think about it and like one <laughs> it's funny because like on our uh, on a new project uh, that we're working on because you know Chef's Table is all like sing- mainly single main characters sure. we have a new project that we're working on and we kind of weave between different characters mm-hmm. and I'm watching Million Dollar Listing whenever you go to the other guy's storyline they just have a big they just say the name on the screen Steve yeah like huge letters like yeah. okay now we know we're in Steve's story yes. like, it just like tells you exactly where you are and yeah. it's just like we work like really hard on Chef's Table <laughs> to like avoid like having to do like any expositional text sure. or like whatever. And then and then they just like cut to them being like, and then I felt this way at this yes. moment. They just explain everything. And so there's something like liberating about being able to just throw it at the audience. Like yeah, whatever it is, just it put it on the screen. You yeah, just make it whatever the hell you want. Well, my fa- my <laughs> just absolute, tell them how to feel, you know, whatever. <laughs> my absolute favorite scenes in any reality shows are when characters get together and it's like, hey, so I just wanted to get together to talk about X. And it's like, this is a text message at best. Like, uh, <laughs> I kind of love it. I have, a, I have a friend that worked on a reality show that I won't mention. It's very popular. But basically he was like, none of these things actually happen. What happens is that they're really boring and they're alcoholics and they get drunk and they get into fights. Right. And then producers go away and figure out how to tie those fights together into a narrative. And so then everyone puts on the clothes they were wearing a few months ago and they improv their way to oh the fight. Oh my God. <laughs> and this is like, this is a major reality show. Wow. But it's just like, but I kind of. They, know, they, they create scenes oh, that lead up to yeah. the fight that they know that they already have. Because it, because there isn't really anything going on in their lives that's of interest. And so oh they just get them drunk enough to fight and then they figure out how to get to the fight. And 
I, I part of my the guilty pleasure for me is try to figure out what was real and what was. I, I, I just like it makes me love these shows more yeah, weirdly yeah, enough. Yeah. But they're not saving the world. But I guess we need pop culture as well as as stories that change the world. So I don't blame you for watching Billion Dollar Listing. I watch it too. <laughs> All right, David. So I gotta know what is the best and worst thing that you've actually had to eat on set. Oh man. Well, I mean. It's hard for me to say best without like all the chefs getting okay. Like, super that's true. <laughs> one of the best. You're things like Andy that... Cohen with the housewives. You can't say which one's your favorite. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one of the best things that I've eaten on set um, has got to be just this uh, incredible uh, leg of like Iberico ham uh, oh, that I had at a. We were shooting a, a, sh- a chef's table pastry episode in Spain, go and it's like this. the guy just yeah. Jordy brought in this just this leg of ham, and he, we were shooting it, and he was just like cutting these little slices, these super thin slices oh. of the most delicious ham, and he's just like feeding it to everybody, like cameraman, like everybody's like throwing <sighs> it. That happened to Massimo too. Some of the chefs just love to feed the cameraman. Like oh we have, a, we could do a whole like super it. cut of just like it. food being thrown at the cameraman. Oh my god, that's a great uh, show. So that's to work great. On. And then the weirdest, worst thing we were at a, it, it was kind of connected to the show, but it wasn't actually something that was on the show. We're we're at this restaurant in in Mexico. Really cool chef, really cutting edge. Like we had eaten some ants like earlier, oh and it gosh. was like okay, so like the ants, like they kind of taste like lemongrass. Like you know, uh, that's fine. We had okay. some ants sprinkled on an ice cream cone. A little weird. It's fine. Okay, so next meal we have like a little rice cracker, and it's got um, like, it looks like little like bits of like rice or something on top of it, uh-huh, or like uh-huh. some risotto I don't or like something. Where this is going. And we're all like eating the risotto, like oh, it's, it's really larva, good. And then the chef it? comes by and he's like, yeah, oh, oh these are the uh, special ant larva. And I it's knew only- it was larva. <laughs> <laughs> And it's only juicy at like this time. It's like only one day of the year oh, that the ant larva is like so good. Larva. And he tells this whole story about how the ant larva it's like so hard to source and oh, it's such God. a precious delicacy oh, and all this stuff. And, it's in and we're your like halfway now. through eating and we're just like the chef is right there and we're just like trying not to just like oh. just like go yeah because we don't oh, want to insult God. him because no. you know he works so hard. Did it He's taste telling us about good? how hard it was. No, it didn't. I it mean, didn't for taste me, good. yeah, because you're so distracted by the fact that these little popping things in your mouth are yeah. Okay, first of all, the pop I just visualized. It not yeah. really. Yeah. No, so you know it, what? Thank you. Because I was gonna leave this interview and like <laughs> eat my face off. Now I'm not. Yeah. I'm gonna have a salad. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the dark side. So that, was, that, that was that was rough. But um, Ooh. you know, he meant well. And the other the other food was awesome. But uh, sometimes our brain just can't. Even if like the flavor, I'm sure the flavor objectively is good and yeah. it's like tasty. But you the brain, yeah, you got to get. You can't get used to it. Well, that's the, the brain is. <laughs> you have it, to get used to it. It's the idea of what you're eating is just as important as what you're eating. Yeah. Because if you go back like forty years, the things people were eating are disgusting. <laughs> like, oh, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> there's an amazing Twitter account called Seventies uh, Dinner Party. Oh my god, it is the funniest thing ever. It'll be like a bunch of shrimp like in a Jello mold or something. It's just yeah. like the craziest. That was like the age of yeah, like space like, on the, food on and the stuff. back of the Betty Crocker box and stuff. And it would just have these insane recipes. You should see this thing. It's like I'm insane. literally gonna follow it as soon as we're yeah, done. Yeah, Seventies Dinner Party. Well, this has really been a, a treat, man. What you do genuinely is like a magic trick to me <laughs> it is it's like it's a miracle what you do and it's just been a joy talking to oh, you thank so. you so much really thank you for that. being here how, how can people obviously you know yeah come Chef's see us table on netflix. is come all see us on netflix on the netflix yeah but how can people find you are you on social media yeah yeah i'm uh at this is david gelb on uh instagram and twitter Fantastic. and uh, don't at me all right cool <laughs> at or don't at david gelb you got his info i gotta thank my guest david gelb for sitting here this was amazing i'm gonna literally go and eat after this it's fine uh, i gotta thank our producers gina delvac and kara hart our production engineers sean o'brien and chuck brevetary special thanks to vishnu valabanani head of programming quinn o'toole 
Chris Bowers created our theme song. This is Don't Add Me with Justin Simeon. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, leave a review. I actually want you to at me. I want to hear from you. Uh, and we will be back next week with another episode of Don't At Me from the one and only KCRW. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. <laughs>